Hello, and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is Dick Enberg, 14-time Emmy-winning sports broadcaster and nine-time National Sportscaster of the Year. He's been in the business for more than 50 years, going back to his days as the founding sportscaster of the IU football and basketball radio networks. So his voice was heard on WFIU in the station's early days. Dick, welcome back to Profiles. Oh, and thank you. John McEnroe refers to you in his introduction to your book as being old school. <laughs> what does that mean? I am old school. I, I embrace uh, principles that were taught to me back uh, when I was a youngster after World War II growing up from a father that went through a depression and made sure that his sons and daughters never felt that they were more important than they really were, that there was always a chance to move up. And as soon as you thought you were so good, you couldn't improve. You could only go one way, and that's back down. And that was a lesson that I still carry with me. And in fact, I still, at age 75, I'm trying to please my father in every broadcast and my behavior away from the microphone as well. It's uh, values and, and tradition Romance, uh, that's all old school, and uh, I don't ever want to change. One of the way you're old school is you played sports in high school and a little bit in college, but so many of the sportscasters today are veterans of high college ranks or pros. Um, does that make a difference? Well, I, I think we need them. At, at first, um, people like Howard Cosell felt that the athlete moving into the broadcast booth was unnecessary and uh, made fun of them, in fact didn't endear himself to a lot of the individuals with whom he worked. Um, but I've always felt that if you have an opportunity to have someone who is a true expert in a field, and in this case athletics, if it's a former baseball star, Don Drysdale, a Hall of Famer, was my baseball partner. Uh, in football, I've worked with Merlin Olson, a Hall of Famer, Bill Walsh, one of the greatest coaches of all time. Uh, basketball, I've uh, had as a partner, boy, quite a contrast here from Hot Rod Hudley to John Wooden. And, of course, my uh, dear partners in the triumvirate were Al McGuire and Billy Packer. And to be able to work a game in which, uh, as a fan, and I've always considered myself, my role as a broadcaster is to represent the, the hundred, hundreds of thousands or millions of people who are watching or listening, and I'm taking their seat and re representing uh, what they might want to know. And if I've got an expert next to me and there's an unusual play, uh, how delightful is it to say, I don't understand that. Why would that happen? And instead of my trying to guess what uh, might have occurred, we now have someone who's been on the in the arena, on the field of play, who can relate to it from personal experience. So I, I really do well. I always have welcomed a partner who is uh, has a strong athletic background. The fact that I played a little bit not well, uh, you know, a lot of the best managers are men in baseball who never really were good players. They were minor league players, and they appreciated what high quality was. Sometimes someone who is so good, uh, Hall of Fame level talent, they can't relate to somebody who you're trying to coach up to be better. And so maybe that has served uh, well, because I've, I've been a lifelong fan of sport. I mean, I still, when I walk into a broadcast booth, I walk in hopefully well-prepared, but also as a fan. And I think that combination uh, makes for, should make for a good listening. One thing that has changed um, since you came into the business, you were a radio sportscaster at first and later went to television. Um, in radio, you learn to describe things. You have to draw the picture. Are we losing something now that we see most of our sports on television rather than listening on the radio? I think so, Owen. Uh, 
the comparison I've often given is on radio. Uh, we're working with a, um, a clean canvas, and you have to apply all the paints, um, provide the, the audience. In fact, it was one of the early lessons I learned you know, on radio. Consider the fact that uh, everyone does not have sight, and you're trying to describe what you're seeing to someone who might be blind. And that was that kind of painted my own picture as to how to operate. Now, in television, we're really docents. We just take the audience through. The, the, the painting's already there. It's complete. It changes, but we, we try to uh, hint at uh, uh, hues and nuances and colors and, and, and help to uh, enjoy the t- entire piece of work. But if you don't know on television, if you don't know as an announcer, all you have to do is be quiet because the picture gives you the answer. So you can fudge. On radio, you can't get away with that. There's nothing worse than that five seconds of dead air. On television, sometimes we don't give a telecast enough dead air where the people can appreciate the sounds and the sights of television, and we interfere with too much verbiage. You grew up in Almeida, Michigan, and went to Central Michigan and came to IU in 1957. What did you expect to accomplish when you were at IU? Well, I came here expecting to be a college professor and Hopefully, uh, still, my dream of being a coach would uh, would be alive. Um, I entered Central Michigan in 52 with the thought that uh, I wanted to be a coach. And I loved my coaches, and that's what I wanted to be. I had no more ambition than that. And as I progressed through uh, my undergraduate education, my professors and a couple of them had attended Indiana felt that I had the goods to go on for a graduate assistantship. And they recommended that uh, I uh, apply uh, in the field of health education, and uh, I had, you know, in those days, if you were going to be a coach, you had to minor in health education. And uh, the more I took uh, kinesiology and and the uh, heavier subjects in health education, the more I enjoyed it. I thought, you know, really, I, I could, in, on a college level, I could teach uh, this material. So they recommended there were six or seven schools at the time. It was Columbia, North Carolina, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, UCLA, Cal Berkeley. So I I applied to all those schools for a graduate assistantship. And now the forms came in uh, to my dormitory in uh, Mount Pleasant, Michigan, and the shortest form was Indiana. So I filled that one out first. And when they said yes, the job was complete. I'd never been here. I got in my, I had a, uh, my first car, a 1950 Chrysler Imperial. It's about the size of one of the tanks you see on television these days. And I headed toward Bloomington, uh, found my way through Fort Wayne and Amish country down to, to this campus. And uh, the first time uh, I had seen how beautiful this is, and I still, when I walk around the campus uh, while on this visit, it has to be one of the top five. And I love going to college campuses, one one of the top five in the country in terms of natural beauty. I I just think this is a a fabulous place to be, exciting to be here at Indiana. Anyway, in the first day, I'm wandering here. I tend to do that. Uh, and, and just to scout out where where would I be taking classes. And, of course, the campus at that time was probably a half the size that it is today. And the uh, WFIU, the broadcast center, was what we called a Quonset hut. Down There's a parking garage there now on campus. And uh, I had been... Uh, helping myself uh, financially at Central Michigan by working at a dollar-an-hour job at the radio station. I applied for a custodial job, but they wound up making me a disc jockey and then eventually the sports uh, director, if you will, and thought now after a couple of years of doing play-by-play college and high school that I was thinking I was pretty good. And 
lo and behold, I walk into that WFIU, and there's a sheet saying uh, auditions for the new IU Sports Network on the following Friday or whatever. And so I applied and uh, was able to uh, win that audition and become the, the initial voice of the IU Sports Network. And uh, that was really what uh, kick-started my career as a broadcaster. At that point, I still was thinking that I'm going to be a college professor, and I earned my master's here and my doctorate here. And and when I went to California to what is now Cal State Northridge, I thought that was going to be my life's calling. When you were starting out, coaches were professors. Did you expect that you'd be do something, doing something like that? Well, what had happened was uh, I'd given up uh, all hopes of being a coach, although that was my dream as a youth. And I, th- I thought that Indiana was going to hire me. I was 27 years old when I earned my doctorate, so I was way too young in the eyes of you know, the professorial academicians. You, know, you shouldn't be that young in earning your doctorate. But the success of the IU Sports Network, starting from scratch when we had eight stations on an FM relay basis that sent the signal from here as far north as Gary, uh, was obviously um, a big plus for the athletic department and the Alumni Association which sponsored the, the broadcast. And by the time I was ready to leave the campus four years later, the network had grown to around 40 stations. In the meantime, I was teaching some classes, some freshman classes as part of, the, I mean, you had to have two years of, of uh, teaching experience in order to earn your doctorate, and they did not uh, uh, normally allow you to uh, earn those two years of experience on this campus. They want you to go somewhere else and teach and then come back. But uh, Dr. Marge Phillips taught the most difficult class in the hyper school at the time, advanced statistics, and I had undergraduate, a math minor, and I found it not that difficult. Well, others of my friends found it uh, really challenging, and sadly, she she had a, a, a bad illness and uh, was not able to continue in the classroom, and she re- there was no one on the staff that could teach the course, and she recommended me. Here I'm the youngest guy in the entire classroom teaching the toughest course. All of this is a prelude to saying, you know what's going to happen, Enberg? You, the broadcasting part of your life is going really well here. You, I know they like you there. They've even given me a raise now from 35 to $50 a game, and you're teaching the toughest class in hyperschool. You know, this is going to be where you're going to be the rest of your life. I could always already see the patches on my sleeves on my sport coat. But the dean at the time, Arthur Daniels, I think he was embarrassed that this guy with a crew haircut that looked 22 and I'm 27 was actually getting a doctorate. And he'd, he'd have to explain to his colleagues how in the world could this kid have a doctorate already. I was hardly a genius. So with my shoulders slumped, I walked out and I figured, well, I guess I'm going to have to look elsewhere. And, and life takes you to interesting places, doesn't it, when you don't have your own decision-making? And my life took me out to the West Coast to teach and coach baseball at Cal State Northridge. And four years later, Gene Autry had hired me as his uh, broadcaster in radio and TV. What was it like being a coach at, at Cal State, or I guess it was San Fernando Valley State at the time? It was. When you hadn't had experience as a coach. I mean, that's a fairly high level to start out coaching. Well, and, and that's what uh, actually they thought it was going to be a negative when they recruited me. Dr. Oviatt was the dean of students who came here to campus. And the only reason that I even signed up for an interview was the fact that as a youngster, our family lived in the San Fernando Valley. In fact, uh, it was really all the walnut trees and orange trees, and our two streets were dirt roads, Parthenia and DeSoto, and now the valley has you know, well over a million people, and there's hardly a dirt road anywhere. And and so out of curiosity that a campus was only a few miles from where we used to live during World War II, I wanted to 
just get information. Well, I was very impressed by him, and it was a young state teacher's college, and their emphasis was more on teaching than on research, and that fit into how I saw life. And, he, and then he said, uh, here's the job. It's 4,200, assistant professor, um, but we need an assistant baseball coach. And he thought that was a negative. That was a positive for me. I thought, oh, I'm going to get to coach after all. And baseball was the sport that I played, and I felt I had a little talent there. And as an assistant coach, that took the onus off being, you know, really sharp. And I was fortunate the, the head coach just hired also. We came in together, Stan Charnovsky, uh, a marvelous guy. And he knew so much about baseball, and he taught me quickly. And so that really completed uh, uh, a cycle for me that I did get to coach, and I did get to coach baseball, and not knowing all along that here I am at, on, on this day, at this time, at 75, the announcer for the San Diego Padres, and I'm back to baseball again. You've done NFL and NCAA football, Rose Bowls, Orange Bowls, NBA, NCAA basketball, four Olympic games, last count, I think, 27 Wimbledon events, the World Series, the Masters, U.S. Open golf tournaments, boxing, figure skating, horse racing. I'm going to ask for a raise here. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are some that you, that you haven't done, but, but we, we won't mention those. Do you prefer college or professional sports? Oh, that's easy. Uh, college. There's just the, why. Well, because of um, the enthusiasm and energy that's brought into the arena by the young people, and that's what's exciting about walking on any campus. You know, just there, there's an electricity of energy that young people provide that are motivated, and ex- and even if they have their head down, they're worried about their next exam. It just uh, uh, exudes uh, good things and. Uh, you can compare it very easily with, let's take basketball. In college, we come to an Indiana game here, and uh, the doors open, and an hour and a half before the broadcast, you know, young people are already making noise. They're already excited. They're building a, a tempo and a rhythm for what we're about to televise. You do an NBA game, and you wait till the fourth quarter with five minutes to go, and now the fans start to cheer. They're going to sit back. It's almost a theater audience until it gets down to the nuts and bolts of a, the final minutes of a game. No, no comparison. It's like being in a classroom here. Um, I've had a chance to, to talk in front of a group while I'm on visiting this time, and I told my wife, I've often felt that at the end of my career, and I'm getting close, I want to go back to the classroom because it'll complete that cycle, too. There's just uh, something about looking into a, a, a group of young people and seeing those eyes. Not all of them are open. Some of them are yawning, but that's okay, too. And knowing that you can make uh, a difference in their lives, as my teachers did for me. Does it bother you that college sports at the Division One level has become more professional Inevitable. In fact, in some ways, you could take two extremes. And one extreme to, to eliminate whatever the negatives and the, the black clouds surrounding college athletics, and you just say no more scholarships. If you want to play sports, and like the old days, you come out and you, you're still a student, but if you want to play uh, football or basketball or baseball, you do that and you win a spot in the team. And if you're not good enough to be a student and, and carry the load of uh, a football player or basketball player, then too bad. Somebody else will. I mean, you go to that extreme. And then at, at the other, perhaps, not extreme, but I, I could also be convinced of this, I feel it's unfair, and I know it's all financial. There's not enough money for the little schools. I mean, the big school programs that are actually making some money in football and basketball can provide it. But I have six children, and all six, including the last one who's a senior here at Indiana, 
Uh, I know what it costs for them after you pay for the you know, room and board and books and, and, and the essentials of an education just to be a young person. I mean, to be able to go out maybe once a week and take a date to a movie and all the rest, to have some something. What we've created uh, in the college environment for the scholarship athlete is they can't work. So what is an inner city kid? You know, he comes to Indiana. You can't get any more. How, do, how does he be able to, you know, be able to enjoy the same campus life as my child? I mean, there's got to be some per diem, something that helps him self-dignity. So that, that, that's always concerned me and, and worries me that, that some of those kids don't have. We think they're, hey, you're getting a free education. That's the whole selling point. And true, that's terrific. But how do you be a young man and, and compete with somebody whose parents have a little more money and can at least allow their kid to be human? The, you know, the, the drive to be the champion, to win, sometimes is at all costs for some people. And it's, uh, it takes a, uh, a remarkable program to be able to monitor and police and make sure that they're doing it the right way. And I think you're here at Indiana now, your coaching staffs, uh, that's how they're operating. That being said, what's to stop uh, Sam Liederkrantz in, uh, say, in Kokomo, who's a multimillionaire, from entertaining uh, possible recruits and giving them money and breaking all the rules, and you don't know that's happening until it's too late? Let's take a break here for some music. Um, You've chosen memories from cats. Well, when I was uh, dating my wife uh, 30 years ago, uh, Cats uh, was the new hit musical. And we were in London for Wimbledon and uh, saw one of the very early performances, Andrew Lloyd Webber of Cats, you know, the, the thrill of holding her hand while watching this great musical. And, of course, the hit song was Memories. And so we decided to use that as our wedding song because it took us back to our early days of being in love. And uh, and it's always it will always be a special. Whenever I hear it, I, my heart beats at a little di- different rhythm. from Cats, music chosen today by our guest on Profiles, Dick Enberg of CBS and ESPN Sports. I ran down earlier your list of uh, sports that you'd broadcast, Dick. Which was your favorite or is your favorite? Well, the best game, best announcer game, Owen, is baseball. It's the most demanding, most challenging. It's the most intimate game. It's the longest season. It's exhausting. It's relentless. And I've gone through this this past year. And, you know, the, the work that it takes to prepare and broadcast an NFL game on Sunday 
you're doing every day. You do that. I get to the ballpark at 2 o'clock to prepare for a 7 o'clock first pitch and, uh, and go home. And the next day I do the same thing. You know, there's no uh, free days in, in football or basketball. You do have some days off. But it's um, the game because of the pace. And it, I guess on one hand people say, well, it's too slow. Well, that's the very reason why I think it's the best game because it allows the announcer a chance to call upon other information that helps to build a foundation for the game. And football, the play-by-play announcer, he calls, you know, off-right tackle, three-yard game, second down and seven. Then the analyst comes in and he draws the play and describes it. And you you hope that he's finished in time for you to take the snap of the next play. And then you read a commercial or a promo, and uh, and your job really becomes uh, almost mechanical. And it's hard to – I mean, now and then you try to give a personal story that – I called them mother stories. I've, I've always felt that that was my call as a play-by-play announcer, that I had to personalize the number. That it, You're watching the numbers of the players on television. It's my job to, to make them more than that, that, that you're going to see them as a person. And some, some note, not all my uh, scouting reports or my uh, spotting boards, I have two or three personal notes of that's my challenge on every player, even the reserves. So I can, if there's a chance, be able to duck in a, a personal item. Well, baseball, there's always time. And, you know, unlike football, you, I mean, you can, you can go to a practice and you can stand next to the, uh, the PR director or whatever, and he'll give you a few pieces of information or basketball the same at a practice. And a coach will sit down with you and you can interview a, a coach and a couple of key players. But in baseball, every day you go down the dugout, sit in the dugout, talk to coaches and players, hang around the batting cage, get, you know, go into the visiting locker room, talk to the visiting manager. So the access to information over a long season is bountiful. That makes baseball to me, the best announcer game, but it's also the toughest to call. Young kids will say, uh, you know, come to me with their tapes. Say, Mr. Enberg, would you listen to my tape? And I know it's going to happen. They'll play a double play, and I'll say, that's very nice. And they'll play maybe a home run. That's really nice. And I just wait. I know what's coming. They'll say, but what do you do when the pitcher doesn't throw the ball? Well, there, now, there's the essence of what the challenge is all about. You know, what do you do, and how do you color that? And especially on radio, and it takes us back to why the best sportscasters today, easy. They're the ones calling radio baseball and doing it really well. If you can do that, and the young people that want to be a sportscaster, if you can call baseball and radio and people say you're really good, you can call any other sport. You list all the things that I've been privileged to be able to do in this lovely life that I've enjoyed. You know, it's because I, w- I know I was good at baseball. And, in, and if you are, you can translate those talents to any other sport because all the others are easier. Did you ever have any idea that when you took this job as the Padres announcer in 2010 – um, that you would be in the middle of a pennant race? No, no, no. I was well prepared for a ugly season. Hopefully, it's a, it's a hint of what's to come. <laughs> How many years do you think you'll stay with the Padres? Well, I've, I've signed a long-term contract, and uh, it's, it's like coming back to a college campus to walk into a ballpark, the beautiful baseball field. And as my dad said, remember, it is a park. Look out there. That's a park. And in the old days... Those baseball stadiums were all in the heart of a city, and there wasn't much grass anywhere else. But you walked in there, and there was that – it was like somebody pulling a curtain. And look at that, that beautiful green grass and the, uh, the geometry of a, of a baseball stadium. And I still, I, I still get a little shivers walking in when it's all empty. 
and you're the first one there, and now uh, the ball players come out, and you hear the sounds of batting practice, and then they open the gates, and one by one the fans come in, and by the time the game begins, this empty arena has now blossomed into this flower, and it's uh, it brings me back. And even though it is exhausting because of its uh, day-to-day-to-day nature, and once your eyes open on a new day, even if you're in first place or last place, who, what what might happen today? Something in every game. You, I mean, this might be the night somebody throws a no-hitter. Are you ready for it? You mentioned John Wooden. Um, I'm going to take this opportunity to ask what might be considered a tough question. Uh, you knew him well. He's pride of state of Indiana because of his days at, at Martinsville and Purdue. During the discussion about the illegalities at USC, um, some people started to say, well, John Wooden must have not seen certain things that were happening when he was at UCLA. Um, Do you have any perspective on those arguments? Well, there was a gentleman, Sam Gilbert, uh, at the time of the UCLA success, I believe under oath that Coach Wooden didn't realize. I think he was naive at the time that those things were going on and he was protected from it. I think the athletic director might have known that uh, there were some irregularities, if you will. Uh, I think that that was not uncommon at the time. And we're talking, we're going back now 35 years to 45 years in that run. Teams were not, or universities were not monitored the way they are today. There wasn't access to information as we have it today. I, I just can't believe that John Robert Wooden knew. I mean, he did the quality of this man. I mean, God didn't make anyone perfect, but he came as close as he'll ever come in, in John Wooden. But I've been uh, I've rubbed shoulders with a lot of greatness in my life, and I've, I'm very uh, fortunate to have done that. But no one quite like John Wooden. I think John Wooden was of such high character that if he really had done something wrong, he would have locked his door and walked away from it and admitted his his failures and guilt and gone on to something else. He was uh, other than my own father, the greatest man I've I've ever known. I just couldn't say enough good things about this man. I, I just I never saw a hint. Of impropriety. And I know one of the things he said was he was proud of the number of his former players who went into the ministry, more proud of them than those that went into the NBA. And that's exactly true. And yet, you know, the what I loved, too, about John was, uh, or Coach, I shouldn't call him John, I never did. He didn't impose his religious beliefs on anyone. He He served as an example. His model of how he lived was so ideal. To think that he might have cheated to win games almost turns my stomach. Let's listen to some more music. Um, You selected Old Man River. Are you going to sing this for us? (laughs) You know, my wife gave me one of the greatest gifts about three, four years ago. You know, when you're this, you know, we're all the same. We all think when we get in the shower, we can sing, right? And I've always felt that I could sing and really uh, can't. But my wife gave me a gift for Christmas. She said, you get six lessons with an opera singer in San Diego, a woman who sings opera and teaches. And I just said, all I want to do is sing one song well. And so I took these six lessons, and the the piece of music she allowed me to – to pick was Old Man River, just because with my voice, I thought, you know, that uh, tote that bar, lift that bail, you get a little drunk and you land in jail. I, I wanted to do that, kind of, you kind of show off your range. And so Old Man River, we had a, a little, um, all of her students at the end of the session, we had a little party and everyone had to sing their song just in front of family and friends. It was a really beautiful night and the, the pressure was that you... You had to sing your song in front of 
other folks, and that was about as big a concert as uh, I answered. I, I sang once in public to 12,000 people. That's another story. But uh, Old Man River would, will always be one of my favorites, and I can almost sing it. Mississippi, that's the old man I don't like to be. What does he care if the world's got troubles? What does he care if the land ain't free? That was Old Man River, music chosen by our guest on Profiles today, Dick Enberg, the veteran sportscaster. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. You're included in the list of American sportscasters, top 50 sportscasters of all time, a list that includes people like Vin Scully of the Dodgers, Mel Allen, Red Barber, Kurt Gowdy, Howard Cosell, Keith Jackson. What does it take to be a great sportscaster? The people that you have mentioned there all were good writers, all are good writers. And the writing foundation, knowing how to write a story and to, you know, to be a journalist, if you will, is imperative to to one success and and young people don't like to write it's not it's too easy to use a computer and that half the time writes it spells it for you and corrects it for you that i'd like to think of a, every event as a is a play and in uh, football you have a four act play and in that first act you better develop the characters tell the fans who they are make help the audience to care about what the drama is going to be, what it might be, and then it unfolds in the second and third period um, like a murder mystery. You know, the crime is committed and how will it be solved and who are, who are the players in all of this and, and who do you eliminate from the process. And then at the end, it's going to climax in some way, and you hopefully can tie in that fourth act with the first act and and how you presented the possibilities with the actual reality of a broadcast. So that becomes a, a nice little book. Uh, and I think writers think that way. And and, and I, I really believe that the best, even to this day, the best broadcasters in sports are those that could write a good good essay. You start with that. Then, you know, you've got to be lucky. My parents gave me a terrific voice. I mean, I, I have nothing, nothing to do with that. My dad had a broadcasting voice. And inherited that from them. And then you have to have a passion for what you do. You know, a, a fellow like Vin Scully was the poet laureate of uh, baseball. I mean, he's uh, at 82, still has his fastball. He's an inspiration for me. When you ask, going, how long do I want to do this? He's seven years older than I am, so I got at least seven. And I think that uh, 
there is a trust that comes from an audience that doesn't know you, but you're a fool if you think that they don't really get to know you. Uh, I think there are a lot of young people that they they yell out the information, thinking that's how you broadcast. They think it's not cool. Uh, when you, you feel something for a player and you're positive, it's a positive story, that it's got to be journalistic and hard edge and find something wrong. And I don't think the audience, I mean, I'm not saying duck your head in the sand and ignore those things that aren't right. But I think the average fan wants to hear what's good about all this. And most of it is. And most of the people who perform that we talk about are really good people. You'd want to have them as your neighbors. So why, why does that make me any less journalistic to develop a positive story about a player or an athlete instead of a negative story? So, uh, and I think there's a, a trust that comes that the audience knows who I am and that I would rather promote what's good in, in life and in sport and support that than to try to find something that's wrong with it. I mean, it makes my life a lot happier. Is there an element of acting involved in good sports writing? Oh, yes, and in sports casting as well. Sports casting, yeah, I'm sorry. And, and, yeah. and I learned that back in the old show. I did Sports Challenge where we had you know, various teams and we played sports trivia. And I, I would uh, recreate the uh, the film that was on the show we didn't have the you know we going back to Jack Johnson's uh, boxing championships in the you know, 1915 or whatever that was or a 1931 World Series we didn't have the voice on it so I'd go in get the information and recreate it and I can remember coming out of the studio and the producer saying that was good the information was good but you know you've got to give me more emotion I said I feel like I'm over the top already he said listen to it and I'd listen to it I want you to double that and I'd go in and he was right in some ways as you're calling a game you have to and I, and, and I uh, tell the young people that want to follow along in, in this profession um, that you do have to be a good actor you can't just be a straight line and give a little bit of this and this and this and that. You've got to say, you know what, fans? You know, here's something I learned today. Pause. And that's it. in a way, that's acting. You're saying give, give the audience a chance. This must be something good. Listen to how he delivered that. The pause uh, is one of the most powerful weapons broadcasters have, and we don't use it enough. Or we want to keep filling this, you know, this you know, sound, sound, more sound, instead of, a nice, easy pause, and here it comes, folks, and you're going to really like this. Well, that's, that's acting, using my voice that way. Instead of, here it comes, it's really going to be good. And, uh, and I think that it wouldn't be harmful at all for every young person who wants to be a broadcaster to take acting lessons. It seems to me one of the hard things about being a sportscaster is the competition among sportscasters. You write in your book about one occasion where, in effect, you beat out somebody else who had been waiting for that job. Is that a hard thing to deal with? Well, I went through that with the Padres in this last year. A young fellow that came out from the Midwest had just been hired a year ago as the Padre announcer, and now new management comes in, and they, you know, they... Say the Enberg lives in San Diego. I wonder if he'd ever want to do the Padres. And the next thing you know, they offer me a job, and there I am. Well, in the meantime, I pushed, you know, and some of the writers said, "Him, hey, well, here's this big shot Enberg. You know, he's pushing the younger guy out out of the nest here. That's not right." Well, I didn't. I mean, they offered me the job. What am I supposed to say? You know, I. I'd like the job. I, I'm, I'm, I understand, and I'm sensitive to that. And I took him out to lunch the first thing I could to, to explain that it happened to me. 
It happened to me back in the 1980s when I thought I was going to do the World Series for NBC, and I'm in Helsinki doing the World Track and Field Championships, and someone knocks on my door says, I've got to tell you something. Uh, you're not going to be doing the World Series. This is August, and I'm thinking I'll go back home and get back to baseball and do the series. They've hired Vin Scully. Well, I mean, I can't argue. Vin Scully is the best ever. But it didn't make me feel very good, and it was probably the lowest point of my broadcasting career. That's, you know, they pulled the rug out from under me. So I knew how he felt. And that's true of life. I mean, it's in any field. If, if your bosses decide that somebody else is better or they want that person more than you, then your days are numbered, and um, you've got to roll with that punch. And I, I, you know, when I think back on it, by taking away baseball in the World Series, you know what happened? I started doing Wimbledon. And Wimbledon has become a terrific friend of mine. People associate my voice with it. Strawberries and cream. And yeah, Dick you bet. Yeah, breakfast at Wimbledon. So trust life. You know, it'll sometimes it uh, it won't let you. It puts a gate up on the road you want to take, makes you go over on that road. But that road might wind up taking you to a better place than the one you had selected yourself. And that, that's so true. What if? What if Dr. Daniels had said, "Enberg." We're going to hire you as a professor, and you can stay here as the IU announcer. I'd be here today, and there's no doubt in my mind I would never have left. So he changed my whole life, and it's not been a bad deal. One thing that you've done in recent years is to turn into a playwright. Um, you have this play uh, called Coach about Al McGuire. What led you to write? And maybe you need to tell people who Al <laughs> McGuire is in case there are some non-sports fans. Well, and that's, and that's why we called it Coach. Originally, the play was uh, entitled McGuire. Al McGuire was the most incredible character that I've ever met. No one in second place. Uh, he's a New York street genius. He grew up in an uh, Irish bar at Rockaway Beach in Long Island, played uh, at St. John's and with the Knicks. His brother, Dick McGuire, was a great player, a Hall of Fame player. Al then became a coach, coached at a little Catholic school down in North Carolina, Belmont Abbey, and then went to Marquette and was really one of the very first coaches that, that recruited almost exclusively uh, African-American athletes and had great teams at Marquette but didn't win the national championship. But finally did the year that he decided to retire at 48, middle of the season, he said, you know what, I've had it. As he put it, it doesn't quiver anymore. <laughs> and that team, unlikely, the last team invited to the NCAA that year was Marquette. At the time, they'd lost seven games. That was the most ever that was allowed in the tournament because I think it was 32 or 40 teams that were all that in 77 that made it to the, the uh, March Madness. And his team, a very unlikely run, uh, wins a couple of tight ones and goes all the way, beats North Carolina, wins the national championship. And the older people listening will remember the sight of Al McGuire with his uh, head in his hands, crying at the end of the game. And I happened to call that game with Kurt Gowdy. And then later we became broadcast partners, and Billy Packer uh, was the third member of our team, and we called the games from, and people think it was a longer run, but it was only 78 to 81, and we did that 79 game with Magic Johnson against Larry Bird, Indiana State, Michigan State. And then NBC lost uh, the rights to basketball. Packer went to CBS. They had gained the rights. And Al and I stayed at NBC, and then we became a partnership for another 10 years. And so he 
he was worried about me because I trust everybody. And I'm from a little farm town. And he's a city guy. And he saw things differently. You know, people take advantage of you. And you've got to beat them to the punch. And he was a real fox. And so he gave me all these incredible life lessons. I mean, he allowed me to see, look at life and say, how did he see that? I mean, I would never even have noticed that. I'll give you an example. I go to Ali. I said, Coach, you do a lot of speeches. And, I, and I'm starting to do more and more and more. And there's really nice fees associated with giving a speech. You go to a company, and they're going to pay you, you know, a lot of money. And I said, so I, uh, I'm pleased with that, but I, I've got a question to ask you. I give the very same speech with the same effort to an audience as a favor to a friend. And they applaud just as loud, and I don't even get a thank you note. Now, I don't get that. I mean, I, I get paid, and I get a thank you note. I don't get paid. I do it as a favor, and I don't even get a thank you note. He said, he called me Dixie. Dixie. <laughs> <laughs> Dixie, the guy that got you for nothing, got the thank you note. And yes, that's right. Why would he be thanking me? They're thanking him. So he just taught me these little nuggets of life. And, and when he died, I started to put them all together. And I thought, you know, there's so much here. In fact, the play is an hour and 10 minutes. The play could be four hours and 40 minutes. I have that much material that I couldn't use uh, in the play. And it's, uh, it's his technique and coaching. It's his uh, how he recruited he had cracked sidewalk, didn't want a grass in the front yard, getting mother in the kitchen, how he worked officials, how he didn't know X's and O's, but he could uh, uh, knew how to, to coach against a player, against a coach, because they all have habits, referees have habits, all the way into the broadcast time where he had joined Billy Packer and myself and the humor and fun we had there until his dying days when he, he still had you know, the humor amongst you know, his philosophy. One of the things in the play is, and, I, and it's an important lesson, young, that's why I want young people to come to the play. Although, you know, they, there's so much in that Internet and all, they, 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 they're missing the, the joys and the, uh, that come with live theater. There's something, you know, so unique about being in the live audience. Anyway, one of those, as he's dying, he said, I'm going to see my mother now. Uh, she's in her last days. And I'm giving her time. And he said, you know, people that only have a little time left, old people, they don't want flowers and candy and a new sweater. That's for you. What they want is time. And so I go see my mother, and I sit down by her bed, and she talks, and she talks, and she talks, and I fall asleep sometime. I wake up. She's still talking. And, and I wasn't being rude. I was giving her what she wanted. I gave her time. And it's a, that's a beautiful lesson for us all that, you know, that we, we all think something material is what makes people happy. Time is so precious. So that's a little – one of the little McGuire nuggets that is in this arrangement of, of his uh, wit and wisdom that's in the play. And I'm not a playwright. I'll – he wrote it. I mean, he was over my shoulder as I wrote this up to 3, 4 o'clock in the, in the morning. And, uh, and so if, uh, I, I say jokingly, hey, if you didn't like the play, don't blame me. He wrote, Al McGuire wrote it. <laughs> Another sportscaster who came out of a university background, Keith Jackson, retired and then he unretired and now he's doing some various things. How will you know when your time has come to retire? Well, uh, I think that uh, – you have to beat the uh, your audience to the punch. You don't want the audience or the critics to to decide for you. I mean, you know when you're not as good anymore. Uh, you know, I still feel I have it. I make more. I'll admit that I I'm not as sharp as I was when I was here at Indiana or when I was 35 or 40 or 45 when I just everything was right there at my fingertips and I could come up with information and you know my 
brain cells uh, had stored it, and I could recall it just like that. Today, I have it takes longer to memorize the, the when I do a football game. It takes me longer to memorize those hundred names and numbers than it did in the old days. Uh, there are times where perhaps just the right phrase at the right time isn't there, but I still feel that I can compensate because of the the fifty years of experience, and I bring other. You know, just as we do in life. And unfortunately, in our society, we don't look to uh, the elderly for uh, sage advice that other cultures do. But we are pretty smart. And having gone through this process of life, we can give some damn good advice. And uh, and I, I think that I, I can bring that to a broadcast, uh, a maturity, if you will, uh, to a broadcast. But uh, the question, when would I retire? I, I don't even like the word. I think as soon as I considered, I have. And in a way, perhaps now the baseball has made me look at the rest of my life differently because I just can't continue to do football, tennis, basketball, and 180 to 200 baseball games. My judgment right now is this, that those four sports are like four beautiful women, and I like them all a lot. And they like me, but I love one. And so maybe that's what's going to take me to, you know, whittling down the workload. It's not really work. I've never worked in 50-some years. This is a joy, my job. And concentrate on one sport, and then that would leave me five months in the year. If I, if I can give it up, it's going to be tough to give up those other sports. If I could give it up, that would give me time to enjoy life with my uh, wife and family. We're going to close with music of celebration Raindrops keep falling on my head. You've told the story before, but it's always fun to hear it again. <laughs> it's a kind of a long story, on, but I, and I don't know how to shorten it. But in 1970, UCLA was in the midst of uh, another championship year. They had won, uh, let's see, Al Cinder uh, had now graduated, and they won three straight there, and now it was the Bill Walton. No, Walton didn't come till the next year. It was the Patterson-Wicks row team. Anyway, I'm calling the games, and I called them uh, without a color man. It was a solo performance. And it was the opening game of the conference season. And Oregon was the opponent in uh, Pauley Pavilion at UCLA. Oregon was not very good. Knew they couldn't beat UCLA. No one did. I think in my nine years at uh, doing the games, uh, in nine years they lost two home games, UCLA. So uh, about uh, ten minutes into the game, and UCLA way ahead already, the, uh, there were no limitations on uh, once you crossed the timeline, crossed into uh, the forecourt, of uh, there's no shot clock. And so the Oregon player dribbles across the midcourt, stops, puts the ball under his hip, and just stands there. And there's no action by any of his teammates. So Coach Wooden just says he's way ahead anyway. He tells his team to go back under the basket and just stand there. Well, I'm up there. I'm on television calling this game, and nothing's happening. And so I say, well, you can see, uh, folks, and this is where the teaching background, and you've got to be honest with your audience, uh, helps out. And I said, well, yeah, look at the flags here. UCLA, they won last year, the year before. You talked about the players and all the rest, and now there's still nine minutes to go in the half. The guy's still standing there, ball on his hip. And let's look ahead at the schedule. They got California and Stanford next weekend, and then Washington State and Washington will be down here, and I go through the whole schedule. And, and then I decide to recap the season, and now we got it down to eight minutes left. And I finally said, you know, it's a, it was a rainy night in Los Angeles, a rare rainy night in Los Angeles. And I said, got to be frank with you folks. My mind, my mind has wandered off now. And I'm thinking about a song. I keep hearing it on the radio this week. And maybe it's because of the weather tonight. It's called Raindrops Keep Falling on Your Head. 
And then there's a pause. And my wife at the time said, we're listening to the replay. You're not going to do it, are you? I said, yeah, I am. Then I started humming it. And the next night, they play Oregon State. Now, these are tape-delayed broadcasts. So at the time I did all of this, it's after midnight. And the, um, at one fifteen, you're signing off. Uh, this taped uh, t- telecast, and I the next night come on, and Oregon State almost beats UCLA. It's a, a shocker, and UCLA wins uh, almost at the buzzer. And before the game, there were about 10 kids that came up to my broadcast location with the lyrics to Raindrops Keep Falling on Your Head. And so I looked at the lyrics as this game ends, and UCLA just does squeak out a win. I said, you know, the lyrics to this song, uh, raindrops keep falling on your head, and just like the guy whose feet are too big for his bed, those raindrops keep falling. You know, it's kind of what the way opponents of UCLA must feel. That those baskets just keep falling, and the winds just keep coming, and, and they're all on your head. You lose again to UCLA. And by the way, if and when UCLA wins the conference title, I'll sing those lyrics at midcourt. Good night, everyone. Well, I thought that was innocent. It was spontaneous. It's one fifteen in the morning. Well, it became a cause celeb. And the, the pep band got their own version of raindrops. And when UCLA would get way ahead in the second half, they'd uh, strike up. You know, raindrops keep falling on your head. And the student body would turn and point at me. You'll sing. You'll sing. You'll sing. They'd chorus. I finally sung. 12,000 people uh, at Poly Pavilion. I delayed as long as I could, hoping people would leave. They didn't. And so I made somewhat of a fool of myself, never on key. And uh, the punchline to it all was that, uh, oh, as I started to sing, it was another rainy night, just coincidentally. And the student body opened their umbrellas. And so I'm, there's this wonderful shot of me from behind me looking into the student body and all the kids with their umbrellas. And I thought, even as I was singing this, and I wasn't singing it well, I thought, this has really been beautiful. We've connected with, with the student body. So about a month later, I get a letter. UCLA Stationery, Department of Music. Open it up, and this professor of musicology for over 30 years uh, said, I'm a big fan, love your work with a basketball, I'm a basketball fan. He said, and I know you're a former educator, and sometime if you have time uh, and you're on the Westwood campus, here's my office number. I wish you'd stop by in the pursuit of uh, academia in my field. I would like for you to explain two notes that I've never heard before in my entire life. <laughs> that brings us to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today has been Dick Enberg of CBS and ESPN. And if you want to hear more of his thoughts and history, you can read his book, Dick Enberg, Oh My. Dick, thanks for being here. Oh, and a delight. Thank you. And we close with Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Oh, my. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson. Too big for his bed Nothing seems to fit Those raindrops are falling on my head They keep falling So I just did me some talking to the sun And I said I didn't like the way he got things done Sleeping on the job Those raindrops are falling on my head Up to greet me. 
The program you just heard was recorded in October of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.